0: My name is Stuart Alsop and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, So what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, my guest is Leo Polovets. He is the co-founder and a partner of Susa Ventures. Uh, and we are going to be talking a lot about what is the relationship between creativity and venture capital. Uh, so we're really excited to have you on, Leo.
1: I'm really excited to be here and really excited about the topic.
0: Yeah. So I guess we could start out with just kind of discussing what creativity means to us and then going into the venture capital side. What, what does creativity mean to you?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, I think a lot of it is about trying to, you know, see as many possibilities as possible, uh, both good and bad, just so that, you know, when you're presented with a decision or a lot of options, um, you can basically make the best choice possible. And and I think that's where creativity comes in because you really need to, you know, the more options you can think of, the better the choice you're gonna make.
0: That's so interesting because that goes into kind of a tangent for me but uh in my own inner work or some would say therapy or meditation what i see the main value of these practices is they essentially allow you to, from going only seeing one option to seeing many many different options and so i, I agree with that as creativity as a as a kind of a way of seeing many options and maybe even as a way of connecting many uh seemingly unrelated uh things as well and now i guess what is the relationship between creativity and venture capital?
1: Well, venture capital is an interesting business. I think you have to be creative in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think the first part is just thinking about the possibilities of a, of a company, of an idea, of a founder. So, you know, some, somebody comes and maybe pitches you on a business idea and they haven't even launched it yet, uh, but they're trying to tell you a story about, you know, here's how this could be a billion dollar company or a ten billion dollar company or you know here's how the revenues might grow from zero to you know millions in a matter of a couple of years and so I think the first thing you have to do is just be able to imagine you know those kinds of possibilities and a lot of times you do have to be creative because there's so many moving pieces um, you know maybe the market is small right now but it's evolving or you know maybe Maybe the idea has like never been tested out by anyone else before. And so you're trying to imagine like, well, what would it be like if people actually had this in their hands? Like how would they react? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's maybe the first level of creativity. And then the second is, you know, in this very kind of like nebulous open-ended uh, scenario that you're imagining, you're also trying to be creative and thinking about, well, you know, how will things evolve if this actually works? Right, like you know, how does the market evolve? Like, does it grow? Does it shrink? Are there other opportunities the company might have? Um, you're also thinking about, you know, how how competition might respond. You know, so like if this works, like what would what would Google do, or what would you know other startups do, or um, things like that. So I think you're always trying to imagine, you know, kind of as many possibilities as possible before trying to figure out, you know, is this good case scenario seem likely? Like, what do I think that good case would look like. I, I think that's basically. You know, that's probably the core job of venture capitalists is like to, to be to get good at imagining you know those kinds of things fairly accurately.
0: And then being willing to have that kind of follow through and put the capital behind the imagination. This is so interesting, the connection between imagination and creativity. So for me, and I know for a lot of other not a lot of other people, but for some other people, uh, I think primarily in words. Uh, although I do have this capacity to visualize things as well. When you're sitting with a founder or when you're thinking about it afterwards, do you actually have an actual visualization, a picture in your head of what this company could be? Do you see it all or does it all happen through words?
1: Um, I I think most of it probably does happen through words. Uh, You know, sometimes if 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 it's a product that hasn't been created yet, you know, a lot of times maybe you're trying to imagine like, well, you know, what do I think this could look like because, you know, hopefully you can sort of visualize, you know, something that's pretty close to what the founder has in mind. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to imagine, like, what does this product look like? You know, if I was using it, uh, like, what what would it be like to use? Like, would it make my day easier or better? Um, so there's a little bit of that. But I think most of it probably is more on the, you know, thinking about the words and the story and trying to just imagine how that, how that feels, but, you know, not necessarily visually.
0: Mm-hmm. And then what is the tension between investing in a company and the founder's vision. Is there any tension between you investing in someone um, and then they have a vision? Uh, wh- where does the tension come in, if at all? Or where does the conflict in the relationship come in? Is there a conflict in that relationship?
1: There there definitely could be. Uh, I think it depends a lot on both the investor and the founder. Um, you, know, you, you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned that you have this meditation practice and You know, I think there is an element here of like trying to be more, kind of like more at peace with whatever happens and maybe less in a meditation way, more in like a, you know, a Zen or stoic way, which is, you know, as the investor, maybe you had one vision and you thought you were on the same page, uh, but it turned out the founder had like something slightly different in mind. Um, And, you know, it it could be a big difference, but it could just be a subtle difference where you know, for example, maybe like, this is not a good example, but maybe they had the desktop app in mind and you were thinking of something mobile and you never talked about it. And, you know, and so this whole time, like you're making an investment decision, you know, you're deciding to partner up and then maybe six months later, you know, the founder has their product ready. It's on desktop. And you're like, wait, 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 I thought it should, you know, I thought it would be on mobile. Um, you know, I, and maybe you've been thinking about it so much that you've convinced yourself it should be mobile. So you start you know trying to talk to the founder about it. But the truth is like, you don't really have control over this and you know, probably nor should you as the investor. So to some extent, like, you know, you can make a pitch of like, Hey, you do this on desktop. What do you think about mobile here? Are like the five reasons I think it should be mobile. But in the end, the founder decides and they might decide like, no, that's dumb. I'm gonna do desktop. And, and you kind of have to be able to just live with it. Um, and so I think some of the tension is, you know, some people are better at accepting things than others um, or maybe accepting that, you know, they're sort of there to advise or to give opinions potentially, um, you know, if they know what they're talking about, but they don't have the final say. Um, and so if, if, if you're okay with just giving an opinion and being okay with it being ignored or disagreed with, then that's going to be great. And if you're not okay with it, it's going to be a frustrating job for, you know, both you and the founder.
0: Yep. That gets into expectations and expectations, either whether it's a fear or a hope essentially leads us to, uh, a conflict with reality because reality is nonlinear, uh, and reality always throws us things that we're not expecting. Uh, and then these expectations tie a sense of emotional weight to, oh, this needs to be this way and for me to be happy. Um, so I think that's a very good point. Something- yeah. And, and, and
1: I think it's both expectations about, you know, the company, but then also understanding of your roles, right? Because maybe, you know, maybe if it's, let's say it's, you know, you like two co-founders or in the same way, or maybe it's like, you know, you as the the podcast host and a guest, like you two both have some agency and control over the situation. So if you disagree, like you can actually talk it out and come to a conclusion and, you know, like maybe you decide you don't wanna do a podcast if like you can't get on the same terms or something. Here it's more of a, you know, once you invest, you do have more of a, like a passive relationship where no matter how much you disagree or how much you agree, you know, or like what your thoughts are, um, you know, you can voice them, but in the end, like, you know, you basically don't really have a vote. Uh, so, you know, your, your arguments are only as, like, as convincing as you make them.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And then the other thing I'm getting from this is this communication aspect. I'm realizing that in pretty much every, every relationship, communication is so key. And like as social beings, we are hardwired in order to respond to social cues and social communication and then there's a um, not as famous as Freud and Jung but another famous psychologist Alfred Adler uh, who talks about how every problem that we have is essentially an interpersonal problem and that communication seems like it's the only way to really be in a long-term relationship not that not that's always good because communication often involves argument and this is kind of where I'm going with this where it's like In order to do anything really effective with other people we have to communicate what we're thinking uh, and also understand what they're thinking Uh, but a lot of times people have hang-ups and founders i imagine in particular are are motivated by maybe a chip on their shoulder in a lot of ways so they might have a lot of these things so there's it always seems to be this tension between how much to communicate uh, and then recognizing that that communication will be wrong at some point and won't you none of us are perfect at being able to communicate exactly what we want or exactly what we need. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think that's definitely true. Um, and I, you know, I, am not sure, like, I'd be curious to hear your experience, but I imagine maybe you even get this as, as like a, you know, the host of a podcast where maybe you have some question in mind and you ask it and it gets interpreted in like a very different way than you expected. And, you know, maybe, maybe it, it didn't even seem like it could be interpreted a different way, but like, you know, the answer goes in a very different direction or like, it's not the question you wanted uh, answered. Um, and so so I think, you know, because we're all sort of in our own minds and maybe we imagine that others largely think the same way, but they don't. Uh, I think often, you know, that, that leads to surprising results, which are, you know, sometimes good and sometimes, you know, have to be worked through.
0: Uh, yeah, I guess I guess if we all communicated all the time perfectly, we'd all get pretty bored as well because uh, everything would just flow and there'd be surprise, <laughs> surprise to, to life. Yep. What about that? Have you had any like large surprises in your investing career? What is the element of surprise like are either positive or negative uh, that you've experienced in your career investing?
1: Um, I would say, you know, the biggest surprises for me have often been well, I would say a couple. So with companies, often the biggest surprises have been in terms of like how the market perceives their solution, right? Cause a lot of times it's not what you thought, you know, like, like someone has an app idea, you know, and you can imagine like you're looking at something like Snapchat before it launches and you know, it's easy, it's easy to imagine like a lot of, you know, maybe dismissive reactions to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it launches and you know, it goes really viral. Like a bunch of people are using it for, you know, hours a day and it's just like very different than what you expected. Um, And, but I think you also see the opposite where sometimes, you know, a founder comes to you, they're like, here, you know, here's an industry, they have this big problem. I have a solution with this big problem. I'm going to go launch it. And, you know, in theory and sort of like, you know, from a first principles perspective, it sounds really good. And then they launch it and it's crickets. Um, and so that happens sometimes too. And it's always a surprise because, you know, I think for both the founder and the investor, who's, you know, who are both bought into the same vision, Mm -hmm. like it seems crazy that you know you have the solution. It makes so much sense, and then you go show it to customers, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't really care." Um, so, so I, I think that's definitely been a surprise. And then I think, you know, maybe on my end in terms of the role of a VC, I've definitely been surprised that you know, I I won't get too deep into my background, but I was an engineer for about ten years, and it's not a common background for uh, VCs to be you know software engineers by training. Um, And so when I first got into the job, I had a lot of expectations and, you know, kind of assumptions of what parts of my experience would be valuable as a VC, what wouldn't be valuable, maybe like what role I would play in terms of, you know, talking to founders and trying to help them out. And I thought a lot of it would be on the engineering side, you know, where maybe like we would go through software architectures together, or, you know, I would be like beta testing their products and, you know, filing bugs or something like that. And and that didn't materialize at all. Um, I think the role has been much more about, you know, frequently about psychology, right? Where starting a company and running a company is pretty hard, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And most people that are doing it, you know, it's their first time doing it, or maybe it's their second or third time, but you know, they don't have a huge sample set, and so they end up having a lot of situations where something happened, and it's you know, unusually good or unusually bad or unusually difficult. And a lot of times, they just want to talk to somebody and say, like, well, this happened, like you know, is this the end? Or like, did I mess up? Or is this normal? Mm. Um, and, and so I think a lot of the the relationships I have with founders are more about, you know, almost like setting expectations, as we talked about before, um, you know, kind of giving some benchmarks They're like, well, you did this and, it, you know, or this happened to you, and it seems especially good, or especially bad. And, you know, just to calibrate, like this happens, you know, 5% of the time, or 80% of the time. And I think a lot of times that, especially when, when, difficulties arise that makes people feel a lot more comfortable to know that you know maybe others have been in the same place and they've you know they've worked through it and it's not you know it's not necessarily like uh, like uh, you know death for their startup
0: interesting and it it reminds me of when i first started my company and it was uh this tension of receiving this investment from someone but then also not wanting to let them down that might be particular to me but i imagine it's not and so it's it's you have this relationship with someone. And so I think the common wisdom behind that is like, Oh no, I don't want to tell them if something bad is going on. Um, mm-hmm. That would mean it's bad for the company. Uh, but in reality, like a lot of them are there to help you. But I imagine a lot of aren't as well. What do you think about that tension? Like that, the, the expectation that the founder has like of like, Oh, I just received money from this person. I want to pay them back. What do I, you know, but some things are going wrong. How, how do you either like make that clear to founders? uh, that it's okay to talk to you or how do you deal with that?
1: Um, you you know, I would say on my end, like the way I try to make it okay is, uh, you know, I think in in general, I try to be, you know, nice and not a jerk and, you know, not difficult, especially if, if times are difficult. Um, and I think a big part of what I try to do in the early days is to be very like the early days of relationship is to be very, you know, explicit and, um, and like almost like overdo that, where if the founder, you know, tells me some story of, you know, like some minor thing that happened that maybe is, you know, challenging for them. Um, you, you know, I, I think I could I could try to overreact or I wouldn't try to do this, but like, you know, one reaction would be to overreact and say, like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. Like, do you even know what you're doing? Um, and I don't think those things, but also like I think if I thought those things and said them, that would that would really cripple the relationship, um, you know, especially in the early days. And so I think instead it's to, you know, to be supportive no matter what. Um, And that could still mean like, you know, giving advice or giving feedback, but doing it in a nice way where the person feels like, Hey, you know, I talked to somebody, I feel better about it. Or like, they gave me some advice, but like they didn't judge me. Um, And so I think, I think that's a really big part of building the relationships uh, early on. Uh, And I've definitely noticed that, you know, for those kinds of relationships with founders, if, if we build a good relationships in the first uh, relationship in the first month or two, Um, usually like years for years after that, it's great. And then on the other hand, like, you know, if we don't build that kind of relationship, which often is like through no fault of either person, but maybe like nothing really arose for a few months and everything was rosy. And, and then like four months in, there's a problem, but the founder is, you know, so used to like, Hey, we only talk about positive stuff Mm. that maybe it's harder to, to, you know, broach that problem. Um, a lot of times if if we haven't had like a more difficult discussion in the first few months, like it's hard to start having them afterwards. Mm. Um, you know, not impossible, but definitely hard.
0: That brings up two different things. One is like inertia of relationships. And the other one is kind of a basic principle. It seems that whenever you start something, it's always good to start it off really explicitly. And, yeah, you know, I imagine that you know this in engineering too. It's like you really spec it out as much as possible in order to Figure out what is going to go wrong, even though we can't predict all those things, we're going to try as hard as we can so we get it right that first time. Uh, and or like building a house, like you know, building the house is a foundation, you build a house, a foundation anytime you're learning something, really go to those basic principles. And again, it goes back to that with investing, it seems like is just to get that relationship. Oh, and this brings up an interesting question what is the how do you? Establish a great relationship from the beginning and you kind of already answered it saying have the difficult conversations first But are there any other points you, you would have there?
1: Um, I think that's probably the biggest one um, You know, I think being vulnerable about maybe challenges I'm having can also help right because mm. I Think in a way that sort of sets the tone is like hey, it's okay to talk about you know the harder stuff too. Um, you know, like maybe like maybe we made an investment offer and you know, we like couldn't you know? Couldn't get it at the that the offer price we made or something like that, um, and you know, so like maybe I'll be frustrated and I'll talk about how like that's a hard part of the job, and you know, like usually the the founder is not really critical because they're, you know, they they've kind of maybe been in similar scenarios recently. They understand how it works, uh, but they're sympathetic. But I think just you know being open about that kind of stuff is sort of an invitation for them to be open about it as well. Um, and again, I, th- I think the really important thing is just like how you react, especially in the first few times Um, you you mentioned, there's, there's an inertia. And I think that's, that's definitely a big part of it. Uh, And I think the other part is sort of, you know, you, you almost set like a baseline or a ceiling for, for how things are in the first few months where, you know, if you're like, maybe if you have really deep, um, you know, unguarded conversations in the first few months, um, even if you stop doing that for a few years, I bet you can get back to it. Uh, but if you never start there and you always have more of like the superficial relationship, I think it's hard to evolve that later on if you need to.
0: This brings up a question, w- which is investing in, in companies that are outside of, uh, Silicon Valley. And cause it seems like to do what you just said, it's really important to get people together, maybe even for like multiple days at a time. I read one, one place that if you want to basically bond with somebody, you need to have three hours of an uninterrupted, uninterrupted time. And that time can't be very like scheduled as to know what we're going to do it needs to have that element of (coughs) um of spontaneity and and for a long period of time and that's actually why joe rogan does his episodes for three hours so that he can bond with someone um but uh and then so it seems like you need to do that in person but i have started to notice little whispers of investment going through uh, zoom meetings and being more international do you think that can work or do you think that it's important to really be in-person space with, with a founder before investing them. In.
1: Um, I think I think meeting in person is definitely you know a good way to like boost the relationship a bit. I think video does work pretty well. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. I think longer conversations are you know they're typically like much more effective for, for building a relationship. And I'm pretty sure it's nonlinear too, right? Where, you know, like spending two hours with someone is not, you know, twice as good as spending, you know, an hour with them. Maybe it's five times as good or something like that. Um, and and so I think the more, the more FaceTime you could spend, whether it's in person or Zoom or, you know, honestly, like even phone calls can be okay. I think the feeling is like, you just both want to feel like you understand the other person and you, you know, like to, to, to some level understand like how they think and, you know, how, how they might behave in different situations and like kind of what their, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And I think on both sides, you just want to get a good understanding of that. Mm. Um, and the more time you spend together doing that, almost like regardless of the medium, uh, I think that works. The, the one thing I'll say is, I think in person is interesting because it really forces you to have, um, you know, like kind of whatever time you allotted, right? So, mm. you know, let, let's say you're going on like a four mile walk with somebody, if You know, if sort of like two miles in, you run out of, you know, the questions you wanted to ask, it becomes more spontaneous. Um, And then then you have like two miles of, you know, chatting about whatever. Um, I think if it's a Zoom call, it's easier to, you know, hey, you covered everything in 20 minutes instead of 40. And then, you know, you're in your room and it's pretty easy to be like, oh, hey, like, you know, my spouse is calling me or like, you know, well, like, I'll give you your time back now because you're you're sort of, you're not really committed to do the next 20 minutes. Um, You could take it or leave it. And I think in person, it's, you know, you're more committed to it, which can help.
0: I just got a bunch of interesting ideas out of that one. Uh, you could set up, I'm thinking about like doing a podcast where you could uh, bring a founder and an investor together and put them on an airplane for, for like three hours. Or something. <laughs> yeah. That'd be really fun. Or,
1: or, or maybe, you know, like your podcasts are an hour and you just tell people like, hey, I'm going to broadcast the whole hour, like whether, you know, whether we run out of stuff or not. So maybe that's like good pressure to keep coming up with new topics and questions.
0: Do a live stream. Yeah, that's really cool. And so, before we we had a pre-interview chat, and you were talking about um, why you know because capital is fungible, and you know any you can get capital from a lot of different places. What really is that aspect of creativity that is required to be a VC that's in the top one percent?
1: Um, I think I think a lot of it is you know in the direction of like being being more insightful in terms of like how things can go right, how things can go wrong. Um, You know, venture capital is an interesting business because in most, in most other, you know, arenas, like, you know, maybe, maybe you put effort in like 10 different things and each one makes you 5% better. And so in the end you're, you know, 50% better. Venture capital is like a really skewed distribution where, you know, you might invest in 10 companies or 30 companies over a few years And it's not that each of those will contribute five or 10% to the returns of your fund. It's more like, you know, out of the 30 companies, one will be, you know, three fourths of the entire fund by value. And then the next one will be, you know, 20%. And then the remaining 28 are worth, you know, 5% or whatever's left over. And so it's a really interesting business because, you know, the biggest winners end up being the thing that really drives like the success or failure of your fund. And, and those are often, you know, the harder companies to predict, Mm. Um, you know, because I think if everyone could see it, the price gets bit up pretty quickly, like you're not going to get a great return on it. So I think it's more about, you know, trying to peek behind the curtain a little bit more. And maybe like, there's a superficial interpretation of like this idea or like, or, you know, the founder's ability, and it's being willing to like, dig in a little bit past the superficial part. And, you know, trying to, I guess trying to be like as creative and, you know, imaginative and optimistic as possible about like what could go right here, what could go wrong here. Like if there's things I can imagine going wrong, is there a way to like mitigate those up front or reduce the risk? Um, and so I think the better you can do that, you know, if you can pick, let's say like one out of 15 companies that, that doubles your fund instead of one out of 30 or one out of 60, um, your funds going to be like so much better.
0: Very interesting. This, this all, Gets me thinking about something I've had in the back of my head for a while now, which is that so you have this venture capital business that started um, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s that created Silicon Valley, and then um, you know they, it led to these software behemoths that rely on this one percent capturing. And I'm talking mostly about social media companies here, where it's like one percent captures 99 percent of everything, um, and so you see this with you know Twitter. Or, um, you know, Instagram, like 1% have these massive followings and then the rest have very little. And it seems so similar to what you just said about investing in companies as well as that these one, this one thing that you invest in out of 10, uh, makes this massive thing. So it gets me thinking about the relation or it's like, what are we headed for in terms of a society and a planet where this is now the, instead of this 80, 20% kind of thing, it's now a 1%, 99%. I don't need to mean to make this like a socioeconomic <laughs> uh, tried, but 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 it's like w- w- Like what does it mean like in the in this long? Period of human history where like for thousands of years nothing w- happened and then all of a sudden we have this Since the 1800s 1700s all of a sudden just this explosion in in so much happening so quickly um, And it's so interesting. I, I don't know uh, this is a big question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you have any
1: um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess maybe like Maybe to ask you first, I feel like we, we have seen this in other areas, although not, you know, not too many over time, but there are, you know, maybe what you would call like blockbuster driven industries. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, along with like media followings, you could think about musicians or, you know, or actors or movies where the biggest ones are so much more high profile than, you know, maybe like the number 30 or the number, you know, number 100 movie star. Um, And so, so there is that effect in other industries uh, where, you know, maybe like the top 1%, you know, are way bigger than like, you know, the top 10%. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: You see that in wealth a little bit. You know, I think one thing I've seen on, on my blog over time, and I'd be curious to see, to know if you've seen this in your podcast is you'll have also like episodes or posts that are just like, they get so much more traffic. And then those are also often the ones in my mind that like, really improve the baseline traffic right so maybe you know maybe you have like a thousand listeners a day and then you have you know a, uh, a podcast with like somebody really high profile and that podcast gets like a hundred thousand listeners and then after that you go from a thousand listeners a day to like five thousand a day um, i don't know if you've seen that yourself
0: yeah absolutely um particularly uh, uh if i were just to interview this one guy named kapil gupta i would get a lot of listeners because every time he he uh retweets one of my tweets where i interviewed him it goes like crazy and then I have a a baseline increases uh but he's a he's a controversial figure and uh it's interesting to to interview him but um interesting yeah yeah. go for it
1: yeah so I mean I would say like in terms of society I think I think a lot of areas are moving more to these you know in venture they're called power law distributions um I think a lot of what that means is you know like sometimes you might have to pick a more narrow specialty you know where like. You can be uh, the number one in something or the number ten in something instead of you know number five thousand, mm-hmm. um, you know, because because the distribution like becomes so skewed now, right? Especially with like social media and you know all of the I guess all of the like online promotions of people and abilities that we're seeing. Um, so you know, I think before, for example, like you could really stand out by being um, you know like an 80th percentile accountant instead of a 50th percentile accountant or something like that. Um, but over time, like maybe, maybe as software comes to like take over some, you know, some basic accounting, um, you know, being in the 80th percentile is like, hey, maybe, maybe the software is like 90th percentile. And so now, you know, the the ways to respond are like maybe you could stop being an accountant. And that's you know probably not really satisfying if you spend a lot of time studying it and building a business. Um, but maybe you get a specialty, right? Where maybe you just do accounting for VC firms or you know, podcast hosts, and, and you could be like the best at that. Um, And then if you're the best at some niche like that, you usually end up being just so much better than all the generalists, Mm -hmm. right? Because like, you know, if somebody really understands the podcasting business, they're going to give you much better advice than, you know, if you go to like, let's say H&R Block. So, so I think specialization becomes, you know, more important over time. Um, because that lets you stay, you know, in the top one percent or top five percent or whatever is meaningful in your industry or your niche. But like your niche maybe gets a little bit more specific over time.
0: That's a very good point. It brings to mind because a lot of people who have reached this massive success on maybe on either podcasting or doing anything, usually they start out with a niche and then specialize in that niche, and then they become a, a mainstream. And so it brings to mind maybe, and but not that doesn't happen to everybody. And this is this is the difficult thing because the only things that we see are the ones that are successful And so we base our models off of that Um, unless we go digging for the ones that are fail have failed So it's difficult to draw lessons from those those successes and also it didn't happen overnight But it appears to us to have happened overnight because we hear about them on a on a podcast and like oh That's the first time i've heard of them. That must have just happened now Um, but <laughs> yeah, it doesn't you know? like i've been doing this. I didn't been doing this podcast now for two years Uh, and uh, and now people are starting to to kind of pay attention to it and stuff like that And it's and it's interesting with that because it it comes with this weird kind of oh This is happening right now kind of thing where it's like and so this consistency is the key for me is um is is how to just be really consistent regardless of all those other things and then Whatever happens happens and not really expect it I guess
1: Yeah, I I think that's a big part of it. I think what's interesting to me too is there are often so many different ways to slice like how you can stand out from the crowd. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, like thinking about podcasts, for example, so in venture capital, like probably the most prolific podcaster is this guy, Harry Stubbings in the UK Mm -hmm. and he's got a show called the 20 minute VC and he's actually, he's really young. I think he's maybe 22, 23. He started the show maybe five years ago when he was 18 and he's literally recorded like an episode a day for, you know, four or five years now. So he's got like thousands and thousands of episodes. Uh, or you know, maybe 2,000 episodes, but still a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he's really built a reputation of like, that's a great place to just go for like your daily dose of, you know, venture capital, if that's mm-hmm. something you're interested in. And then on the flip side, maybe there's somebody like Joe Rogan where I think he stands out, you know, maybe less for like, there's a podcast today uh, and more like he just goes so deep because as you mentioned, you know, he has these like three hour conversations, whereas everyone else has one hour conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I'd be curious if you kind of see yourself in a specific, um, you know, sort of like trying to lead in a specific area. Um, I would say like a lot of the podcasts I've seen uh, that you know, talk to like investors and founders, they focus much more on the business side. Uh, you're one of the very few I've seen that focuses more on like the philosophy or, you know, like, or, you know, t- like uh, insights on, you know, like living life or things like that, which I think is a different angle that no one else is taking. So, you know, you could be mm-hmm. the best at that. Um, I, I don't know if you see it that way on your end.
0: Well, that's really interesting because I haven't seen it that way until you just said it. And that's giving me an idea of how to actually talk about what I do. But um, it's been really interesting because I've I've always been, it's always been very difficult for me to focus. I've always had ADD. Um, and as I get older, it's getting easier, but it's still like this thing inside of me doesn't want to be put into a box. And uh, <laughs> so like p- putting myself into a box is the only way that I can specialize in niche. And so it's been a huge challenge for my show because I don't really know what to say except what is the relationship between stress and creativity but that's pretty broad and abstract so it's not like really clear um, but what you just said makes me kind of think about a new way to talk about what I do but that has always been a huge issue because I want to go broad I want to I want to interview you know biologists about what they're learning about um, I don't know zoology or something like that I, I want to explore all these different interests uh, so yeah. it's hard for me to limit myself but
1: yeah I mean I I, I you know I'd love to hear all the future interviews you do I, I think that I would just, you know, I would say maybe that's like actually another area that somebody like Joe Rogan's interesting because he's good at asking questions, but also he covers a lot of different topics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would say like Tim Ferriss seems like he's pretty good at this too. Um, and so that's a very different feel than, you know, there's, there's other podcasts where maybe it's like you always interview the same type of person or people from a single industry. Um, and mm-hmm. I definitely get the sense that, you know, you're very thoughtful about your questions and you interview a lot of different people. And I think that's, that's a really interesting base for making like, you know, great material.
0: Mm. yeah yeah i'm really excited I, I'm, I'm starting to do interviews in spanish because i'm i'm noticing because like joe rogan he's been around for so long so i can't really base myself off of him because because his he happened at a different time and and really got his base very very long ago but i'm now realizing that spanish the spanish podcasting market is now pretty open and it's just starting and so it seems like if i can do more episodes in spanish i can kind of like cross the linguistic barrier and get some more uh, traction uh because it might mm-hmm. has- Year for attention, which is really, maybe that's a topic we could talk about is attention. And um, because it seems like to me doing this podcast for the last two years is that in this era that I've been doing it, attention is so, so sparse. And this is why I think podcasting is so big now is that because it is so sparse, it is so distractible, but then there are the hour long, two hour long conversations that are just like full of off the script, uh, interesting information, but you have to really invest in them. Uh, Because people have this idea that they're not just going to listen to 10 minutes of a podcast They're going to listen to the whole hour And so in order to do that, they really have to trust this person who's putting out this content And it's so difficult to build trust in this era of attention where everybody's attention has been driven away by these random things I wonder what you think about that
1: Yeah, that's I hadn't thought about it as building trust, but I think that's actually That's a really good way to put it, which is, you know, the I, I, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, when I download podcasts, like I'm subscriber to, you know, 15 or 20. Um, but there's definitely some, some podcasts where I listen very selectively, um, where, you know, if this interview guest mm-hmm. is really interesting or this topic is really interesting, then I will listen to it. Uh, but it's more about maybe the guest or the topic. And then there's other ones where I basically listen indiscriminately, where like anything the host puts out, I will listen to because they're really thoughtful, um, every interview I've listened to, I have really enjoyed. And so I think those hosts, what they've done is, you know, I've listened to Mm. like three podcasts and all were great. And so I'm like, this is awesome. I'm going to listen to everything. And then maybe the other hosts, like I listened to two or three podcasts and one was great. And then I'm like, okay, like there's a potential here, but I'm not going to listen to everyone. I'm just going to listen to the ones that seem more interesting to me. Mm. And so I think that that trust building early on is really important, right? Where like, if you keep putting out episodes and every episode is good, I think, you know, success is much more likely to come than, you know, if you're really inconsistent in quality or, or tempo or things like that.
0: Mm, very interesting. Have you started to see, do you invest in the space of audio first type of things? What do you see? Is there going to be like a new operating system for the, for audio um, consumption or audio even interaction with computers?
1: Um, I'm, I'm more in the B2B investing side than B2C. So I've looked at a few products on the consumer side. Um, I think a lot of them have been more about, you know, things like search and recommendations. So, you know, either helping you explicitly find the thing you want to listen to, or maybe implicitly find the thing you want to listen to. Um, the stuff I've seen on the B two B side has been more about, like the infrastructure for audio, right? So, you know, doing doing transcription with machines instead of humans, which, you know, I think scales a lot better, especially with all the content being produced these days, um, or you know, I would say like, like monetization networks or ad networks or, you know, better ways for like podcast hosts and, you know, kind of like audio content producers to, to make money um, or maybe applications to make production easier itself. So I've looked more at that side. I haven't looked as much on, you know, the consumer side. I, I do think over time, you know, uh, speech to text keeps getting better. So like transcription. Um, so I think it'll be easier and easier to get a good transcript. Uh, you know, right off the bat, uh, where, you know, maybe we record this episode, and you literally have the transcript in real time. And, you know, maybe it's ready with very few errors, uh, right when we're done, even though no human actually had to listen to it. Um, And I think that'll probably open up interesting possibilities in terms of just, like being able to search the spoken word, which I think is not a problem that's been well solved, you know, so Mm -hmm. far. Um, and so now, you know, it's, you, are not just like trying to find things in people's writings, but you can actually search kind of, you know, what somebody said on a podcast or a video, you know, four years ago. And I think that's pretty interesting because I think there's a lot of stuff that, you know, not everyone's a good writer or not everyone wants to write. And so there's a lot of smart people with like interesting insights that, you know, maybe they will share them on a video interview or a podcast, but they're not going to write about them. And so I think, you know, you kind of get a lot more knowledge exposed to the world. Through through this new medium that will be indexed for search,
0: that is really interesting. It brings up the question: What will the search algorithm for voice of the future be? Um, and so it's really interesting because you have Google, and they took the idea from ap- academic publications of like, of you know ranking the, ranking these sites as to how much they've been cited. Uh, and but and then for audio is so interesting because what do you do? I guess that I guess the it could be the same way, but yeah. In terms of, you know, because Otter, I've been using Otter AI to do transcriptions, and those are getting very good. And then I compare that with um, something else, which is Get Audiogram, where I create these one minute clips where they do uh, subscriptions so I can post them to Twitter so that people don't have to turn the sound on in order to re- uh, read what the person's saying. Uh, and the difference between these two algorithms, like Otter, is just perfect pretty much every time. Uh, Get Audiogram, I have to spend about three minutes uh, editing a one minute clip to change all the things where the, the algorithm mm-hmm. didn't get it right which is really interesting so maybe once those algorithms are it might work the same way as search or it might be a whole new kind of way of thinking about how do you search through audio have you seen yeah. anything like that yeah
1: um you, you know I'm, I'm i'm actually pretty bad with names so i've seen a few search engines for text uh a lot of them i think you know quite interestingly if you if you're not a computer science person is they'll focus more on the sound of words than mm-hmm. um, than than the actual typing so, you know, if you write like two doctors, it's not really clear if you meant like T-W-O or T-O. Um, but, you know, in terms of like searching, uh, searching, you know, speech, you can actually just kind of search for the sound of like, hey, T-O and T-W-O make the same sound. So you can just search for like, you know, any, any podcast transcript with like, with two words where like the first one has the sound two and the second one has sound doctors. Um, and so, you know, even if the transcription is not perfect, like maybe your transcription, you know, right, wrote one when you meant the other, um, the user could still find it. Um, so I think that's an interesting aspect of audio search. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I think it's, I think honestly it's probably a little bit less about the search quality or like the search engine. I think it's more about the transcription where, mm-hmm. you know, the, the more accurately you can write things down, um, the, the, the better the search will be, even if you're just using like the same search engines that we've had for text for a long
0: time uh interesting so it is just essentially about applying the old way of doing it to a new way doing it once the computation has gotten to the point is that is it is the blockages towards speech to text based on computational ability or is it something else
1: to be honest this is a little bit deeper than i know um my, my my guess is it's you know like speech is very complex and the the very crude understanding i have of speech to text is you know, what, so you say something, it's a series of kind of short sounds uh, you know, taped together. And what an algorithm will do is it will, it will basically like map out what you said to a bunch of possibilities of what you could have, like what maybe that translates to in written word, All right? So to go back to the example, like you said, blah, 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 like to doctors. And the algorithm's like, oh, maybe you meant, you know, to like T-O, maybe you meant T-W-O, um, Maybe you, you meant doctors like, you know, a single word. Maybe you meant like doc and then his last name is Terz. Um, So there's lots of ways to parse that. And so I think what the algorithm does is it sort of enumerates a bunch of different possibilities. And then it looks at kind of the historical record of all the text and speech it's ever seen or listened to and says like, hey, what's the most likely thing? Like, you know, did I, do I think you said doctor, like, you know, D-O-C-T-E-R, or do I think you said doc and then last name Tur? Well, the second one's possible, but it's really unlikely. So it's probably the first one. Um, So my understanding is speech-to-text works a little bit like that where you know, it takes these sounds It produces a bunch of possibilities of what you might have said and then it picks the most likely thing Um, And so I think that you know picking the most likely thing piece has been getting more accurate Because there's just like more and more data online and then as you mentioned Like the computational power is getting better. So, you know, maybe before you had a like a database of You know a gigabyte of text and now it's 100 gigabytes and so you'll, you know, you have like much richer probabilities and estimates of how likely, you know, each word is in a, like in a specific spot, in a sentence.
0: Very cool. That was uh, very insightful. Uh, The, what you, you were talking about parsing something and all of a sudden I got this idea of that programming computers has helped humanity to understand reality better because we have to think much clearer about at least the words that we're using and program the computers in order to use those words in an important way. And so it brought, brought up the question for me. It's kind of a big question. We can, we can take the last five minutes or so to, to talk about this. For you personally, is what have you learned about reality from programming computers or from being an engineer?
1: That's an interesting question. Um... I mean, I guess maybe one thing I would say is it's been interesting to me to see how often something in nature can be, you know, applied as a computer algorithm to, to mm. different problems. Um, but also vice versa, which is, you know, some computer algorithms can be like applied, you know, in the real world. And so, um, mm. I, I think, I don't remember the name. I think there, there's a book actually called something like algorithms to live by or heuristics to live by where, uh, I think what it does is it looks at a lot of computer algorithms and says like, here's how you can apply it to real life. Um, and so like, for example, one that I find really interesting is there's this math problem, like math computer science problem that is called, um, I think it's called the secretary problem. Mm. And so the idea is, you know, let's say you're hiring a secretary and you know, you have like a hundred applicants in line and you want to interview all of them and pick the best one. Um, but you know, there's some constraints where like you interview a person and then what you want to do is you tell them like you're hired or you're fired uh, or, you know, sorry, you're hired or you're not hired. Uh, and then you move on. And one of the constraints is like, you can't go back. So you can't tell someone today, like, Hey, you're not hired. And then you interview 50 more applicants. and Then you go, damn, the person was good. Like, actually I should hire them. And you go back and hire them. So the idea is like, you have a series of applicants, you know, you can evaluate each one and then you have to make a yes or no decision. And at the end, you're trying to maximize your chances that, you know, out of these, let's say hundred applicants, you pick the very, very best one. Mm -hmm. And the question is like, how do you do that? Right. And so you can imagine all kinds of different strategies where, you know, like maybe you hire the first person you're really impressed with. Right. Or, you know, maybe like you, Mm -hmm. you know, you have some other heuristic, right. Where you're like, Hey, you know, if I have like, you know, if I talk to five people uh, that'll calibrate me and then I'll pick the best one after that. Um, And there's all these different approaches to the problem uh, and it turns out, like for math, uh, the best one is to actually just, you know, you you basically go through about thirty-seven percent or so, like so the first thirty-seven candidates, uh, you say no to all of them, but you keep track of like, you know, how good is the best one, uh, and then you pick the best candidate after that. Mm. And it turns out that like, you know, thirty-seven percent of the time, you'll end up with like the very best candidate out of a hundred. Mm. And what's really interesting is like this. This actually applies whether you have a hundred candidates or a billion, right? And so if I gave you a billion candidates and I was like, hey, pick the best one and you can only go through them once, you might think like, well, that sounds, you know, vanishingly unlikely that I'll actually get the best one. But it turns out it's like, no, you could do it, you know, more than a third of the time because you talk to the first, you know, 370 million and then, you know, you pick the next one that's better than all of those. And, you know, almost 40% of the time you get it right. And so it's kind of a long-winded, like, algorithm explanation, but you can actually apply this in other places. Like, so, you know, for example, like, if you're looking for a job, and you think, well, you know, maybe I have time to apply for like ten jobs seriously over the next three months. And you want to think about, like, well, how do I pick, you know, the best job for myself? You know, one strategy could be that, you know, the first three or four companies you talk to, you sort of you talk to them, you let it soak in, you know, hopefully they give you an offer, and then and then you just say no. Um, but then, you know, the next six, you're started thinking about, like, well, the first one I meet that's better than those first four, like I'm gonna go I'm gonna go work there. And there's a good chance that that'll be like the best job you could find in that two months. Mm. Um, and so to me, it's been really interesting to see like, you know, some of these kind of like math computer science techniques applied to the real world and vice versa. Um, I think like the vice versa piece, for example, might be, you know, I think people have studied like how ant colonies behave or like how evolution works and like, and they've applied that to machine learning. So Mm. for example, like on the evolution side, there's something called genetic algorithms where, you know, if you're not sure like what the best solution is to a problem, um, you know, you could come up with like a bunch of different solutions. Uh, so, for example, like let's say you're finding like the shortest route through 50 different cities. You know, you could draw some random routes, and then you just start sort of evolving them in in sort of a you know, you you combine a few routes like in the way that genes would combine, and you sort of like take a few pieces from one route, a few pieces from another route, um, and then you know, you come up with a new route, and you see like, hey, is that one better than the original two? And you can keep doing this for a long time, and uh, and you know towards the end you'll probably end up with something pretty good through sort of evolution, but you know with applied by a computer. Um, mm. So I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff like that. Sorry for uh, geeking out for a
0: while. No, that was that was really interesting, and it gets into the this whole division between nature and uh, society is just kind of false because we are part of nature, and so it's so interesting to hear how people are taking algorithms from the way that genetics are work and applying them to computer problems. And then also like looking at nature and ants and things like that, and applying that to the way that cities are built. And it makes me think about cities and just like how it goes back to that question about the exponential growth of like, what are we heading for? It does seem like we're heading for a world full of cities, although maybe that might change soon with remote work, but I don't, I doubt it. Um, So yeah, it's really interesting. Could we take a couple more minutes if you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, to,
1: you know, to be honest, I am I think like you, I'm fascinated about how cities will evolve. Um, I don't really have strong thoughts on, on what will specifically happen. Mm. I, I think one challenge is, you know, there's so much like entrenchment in cities, right? Like, so, you know, let's say, for example, like we had flying cars and you didn't need roads. Like, that's great. But, you know, a city like New York is not going to overnight, like, take mm. away all of its roads and figure out what else to do with them. Um, and, and so I think there is a lot of, you know, uh, like this this word you used before I think there's a lot of like inertia or almost you know maybe momentum even to like how cities work where you could have a better way of doing something but you know in a city like New York with a lot of like basically sunk costs it's very hard to like change things um, so I think the most interesting stuff is maybe you know like new cities emerging over time mm-hmm. um, and you know maybe trying things in different ways and some of those things will work well some won't and you know but the, the, I think kind of there on the fringes is where where cities and how they're built will evolve. And then it'll take a long time, but hopefully like some of those good lessons will eventually come back to like the established cities.
0: Mm, interesting. Well, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people find out more about what you're doing?
1: Um, so I have a, a blog that's a little bit stale now. It's uh, codingvc.com. Uh, And then I'm also on Twitter a lot, uh, maybe too much. uh, And my handle there is my first initial last name. So L-P-O-L-O-V-E-T-S.
0: Very cool. Thank you. Yeah,
1: thanks so much, Stuart. This is a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy, because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, When the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.